stories told of two Major League Baseball players. Let's call them Tim and Garrett. <laughs> They're sitting in the clubhouse after chapel talking about heaven. And one of them asked the other, I wonder if there's baseball in heaven. You know, I've been playing baseball all my life. I just love the game. So they said, well, let's make a deal with each other. Whoever dies first, if God will allow it, will come back and tell the other one so they don't have to wonder anymore. So as time goes on, some time passes, and Tim dies first. Why? Because he's not here today. And, uh, and he's older, so, so he dies first. And uh, God allows him to come back. And he says, G.A., I got great news for you. He goes, there is baseball in heaven. He goes, not only is there baseball in heaven, but you should see the stadiums, man. They are just unbelievable. And what's great about it is the weather is always perfect. It's never too hot. It's never too cold. The fans, the fans never boo. It says, absolutely phenomenal. He said, it's just the greatest thing in the world. You know, there's no, and, and then he said, and there's no long road trips. He goes, you just like, you just appear and you're there. He goes, no hotel rooms, no short beds, no out, eating out. You know, it's, this is the greatest thing in the world. There's baseball in heaven. It's great. And Garrett said, well, but you said you had good news and bad news. What's the bad news? He said, well, gee, I was checking the lineup for tomorrow's game, man, and you're batting cleanup. <laughs> You know, on a, on a serious note, you know, death, death is always a surprise. You know, if you think about it, we may never know exactly when its shadow will fall across our door. I swore I thought I heard God whispering that my day was coming as I was getting ready to get shoved in the MRI machine. And uh, on a serious note, I want to thank everybody who was praying for me because you know I can't stand doing that. And I said, okay, slide me in. Let me see what I got to deal with before you, you know, you drug me. And, uh, and I said, okay, Lord, show me what you got. And uh, slid in, and I was able to do it without getting drugged. And that's all because of God and your prayers. So, but, but it's like, you know, what, what if God, on a serious note, what if God j- just came to you? And, and, you know, we know it's appointed for man to die once, then comes judgment. We all have these things in our head. We know that. But what if he came to you and just whispered in your ear that your day is in two months. How would that change your life? What would that do to how you thought about things and, and the activities of your life? And I would venture to guess that if you knew you only had two more months to live, you would squeeze every drop out of life that you could between now and then. You wouldn't waste any time. You know, the Bible says we're to redeem the time wisely. I would guess that you would not waste any time. You know, one of the things that I'm learning as I'm riding the cancer coaster basically are two things. Number one is this. The value of things have become more important than their cost. And the second thing is that the eternal aspects of life overshadow the temporal. You get a long-range, you know, you have a long-range perspective and not short-term. Things that used to drive me crazy on the short-term don't mean anything to me anymore in light of the long-term. See, that's why Paul said that I don't consider the sufferings of this life because they're so temporary to even be worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed. You know, I read the book. I know what God's promises are. I see what's ahead. 
And so I'm not going to you know, sweat the minor things of life, the temporal things of life, because I'm always going to keep them in mind in light of the eternal or what goes beyond. It changes our whole perspective of things. You know? And from the beginning, Jesus knew the date and the circumstances of his death. And we've reached a point in our study in the Gospel of Luke where that date, you know, we learn that that date is no longer two months away or even two weeks away. We learn in, in our study that, you know, that his date is two days away. And how much more there's a sense of urgency as that time is compressed and crunched down to those last two days. And I believe when we understand these things, it makes our, our study of Scripture much more rich because then we begin to recognize what's going on and, and in the context of what's happening, we see that you know, if you only had two more days to live, how much more intense would it be to focus on those things that really matter? And so what he does is he focuses our attention in Luke chapter 21, if you want to grab your Bibles and turn with me there, but he focuses our attention on two things. First, he's focused the attention on, on uh, you know, w- things that death cannot destroy. You know, a humble life, a humble and devoted and generous heart, and God's unalterable plan for the future that we'll see in our, our next time that we're together. But for today, we'll focus our attention on the reality that money talks. And it says volumes about what we believe to be important in our life. In Luke chapter 21, we're going to look at four but very powerful verses. Some of you are thinking four verses. This shouldn't take long. And those who are laughing, no better. Those who aren't laughing are going, what? What's so funny? Luke 21, and he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And he saw a certain poor widow putting in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I say to you... This poor widow put in more than all of them, for they all out of their surplus put into the offering. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. Rachel Fields writes in an article entitled Art, Antiquities, and Auction. She writes, when Vladio Valentino died, entrepreneurs leased the Los Angeles Convention Center to display the 25,000 to 30,000 objects left from his estate. There was an, this was an event for the well-heeled of Los Angeles, and the reason for it was Mr. Valentino was better known as Liberace. Thousands of people willingly paid $6 for the privilege of viewing the lavish remains of Liberace's materialism. This was then followed by an auction at Christie's where another admission charge of $10 was levied in an attempt to lessen the size of the enthusiastic crowd. In a frenzied auction, a king's ransom was paid for, by the bejeweled crowd for the eight warehouses of Liberace's belongings." At that incredible event, money literally spoke. You know, as money was the only speech that was acknowledged by the auctioneer. And if you've ever seen an auction, you'll see the auctioneer will say, do I hear $2,000 for this item? And you'll just see somebody hold up a little card or do one of these to their ear. And nobody says anything. $2,000. Do I hear $3,000? $3,000. Do I hear $4,000? $4,000. Literally, money speaking. 
There isn't any other language that's being uttered at that point other than the fact that 2,000, 3,000, 4,000, I hear 6,000, 6,000, and it goes on and on it goes. And money literally speaks. And it eloquently revealed, you know, when you think about the people that were there, it revealed volumes about the heart of the deceased entertainer as well as those who were in the crowd that day who were competing for his stuff that he left behind. I read, I read an article yesterday in the newspaper, maybe some of you saw it in the sports section, about a guy who, who paid a little over a million dollars, and then with commission it was like $1.2, $1.3 million for the baseball bat that Babe Ruth used to hit his first home run at Yankee Stadium. Now I, now, I don't know about you, but that says volumes about either this guy's love for baseball and memorabilia or his love for buying something that has some value that eventually as an investment will turn him a profit. But it shouts volumes about a lot of things. And it's just fascinating to me. And the point is, is that, you know what, you know, the title of the sermon is Money Talks, and it does. You know, and it's not just a cliche. It's an accurate, it's probably the most accurate barometer of a person's heart of what we hold important to us that's why jesus said that you know he he said for where your treasure is that's where your heart is and that's when he went on and said you can't love both god and money it's impossible you'll despise the one or you'll despise the other you're going to love one you're going to hate the other and you're going to see this as we go through this if you love money you will hate what god has to say to you today if you love God, you won't have a problem with it. You'll be challenged by it. Uh, and certainly you'll have to do some, as I do, some self-examination about what I say is really important in life. But at the end of all of it, you know, it's not going to be as big a hang-up. But uh, the more adverse you are to the message I'm about to share, uh, the greater the grip that money has on your life and material possessions. Where we spend our money indicates what's important to us. I read recently an article that was entitled The Demographics of Gambling. During the last 10 years, Americans have spent over $180 billion per year on gambling. 15 times more than the collective cumulative amount of money that was given to churches. And that pales in comparison when you stop and you listen to the numbers that are thrown out when it comes to the entertainment industry. And whatever that is, throw it in there. You know, one sport or the other or, you know, hobbies like, you know, golf or boating or sailing or, you know, whatever it is, you throw those all out. And it pales in comparison to the entertainment industry. It pales in comparison to uh, leisure travel. It pales in comparison to uh, the consumption, the amount of money that's spent on the consumption of alcoholic beverages in our country. And so when you stop and you look at all of this, you realize that money does talk. And Jesus was obviously aware of this. And he chose the temple treasury for his departing shots at his detractors before leaving the temple for good on his way to the cross. Money and probably better put is uh, giving, uh, giving of money reveals the state of our heart as only few things can. 
you know, that's why Jesus chose this setting to contrast the phony righteousness as we saw of the scribes and the Pharisees who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces, chief seats in the synagogue, places of honor at the banquets. And he's now going to compare them to this widow who had a, you know, not much of a bank account, but she had a huge heart for God. And from those verses, we're going to take a look at three things. First, let's, let's call our attention to God examines carefully what we give. God examines carefully what we give. You know, Luke's account we read, it says, And he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. And then he saw, by contrast, this poor widow who came by. In Mark chapter 12, verse 41, we're told that Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the multitudes were putting money in the treasury. One of the things I like to do, and I'll suggest it for your own study of the Bible, is you know when you take a, a passage like this one, is to look at the parallel accounts in the other Gospels. And you can kind of lay them out side by side. And a lot of times what I'll do is just kind of open it up and, and turn the page like that so I can read them side by side. Or you can actually get Bibles that will do a comparative of each of the passages. They do it in translations. They'll do it you know, in, in, in other ways. But in this particular way, you can sit down and you can read both and look at it. And by doing that, you get more of a complete picture as to what's going on the scene basically unfolds as you read all of the different accounts is that jesus perhaps wary from his you know confrontation with the religious leaders sat down to rest opposite the treasury or the offering boxes and he sat down and he had his head down because we were told that he looked up. So he had to be down. He was probably in a position where he was resting. He was in thought. Maybe he was praying. But he, would then, he then looked up and he saw and he observed what was going on. And in the temple, they had 13 treasure chests, so to speak, or chests that were there. They were shaped in the form of a trumpet. You know, they had a, uh, you know, the, the narrow spout, and then it went down into something that was larger. And then it, they were laid out, and each one of them, for example, would have what the purpose of the offering was. And this one would say, new shekels are due, old shekels are due, you know, bird offerings here, young birds for the whole offering, you know, wood, frankincense, gold for the mercy seat, and on and on it went. So there was 13 of these that were laid out and so you can picture jesus he's sitting there his head's down and he looked up and he saw people coming in and they were putting money into the offering box so if you want to put it in a a contemporary setting just picture as you're walking in jesus is sitting in the back and we've got the offering boxes that sit toward the back and he's just sitting there and he's watching people come in and he's watching not only is he watching what people put in But more importantly, God is watching how it's put in. And he's looking at the heart. He's looking at the motives. He's looking at what is behind such things. And it's not hard to picture. He's observing. He's observing how we give. He's observing how they gave. He's observing what they gave. And all that goes with it. If you've ever sat like in, a, in an airport or, or my version of shopping, if, if, I, if my wife can talk me into going with her, my version is that, you know, you go in the store and I'll sit on this bench, you know, and I'll try not to drool and make a fool of myself, uh, you know, but it's kind of like I just sit there and, and when I'm sitting there, it's, I, I, I love to do it because it's so fascinating to watch people and just, just it's, it's just an interesting thing to watch people. 
And, and sometimes you should see, we should have a camera behind me. So you can see what I get to see on a regular basis as I watch you. You're quite a show. But you could just watch what was going on. And that's what he was doing. He was watching all of this. And, and as George MacDonald said, he says, When we feel as if God is nowhere, he is watching over us with an eternal consciousness above and beyond our every hope. One of the most staggering moments in a person's life is when we come to understand that God is watching us. That God, and, and make it more, make it more, God is watching me. And he's watching you. Can you imagine that as we worship, he is watching you. And he is watching me. And not only is he seeing what, he's, what we see externally, but more amazing is he sees what you and I can't see, and that is he can see into our hearts. And he knows whether when we look at those words that we are focusing on him or on others. He knows whether the worship team and the praise band and all, the, all those who lead us in worship, he knows whether they're really leading us in worship to focus on him or where their heart is at that moment in time. And he knows whether we're saying, hey, look at me and look what I can do versus look at you and who you are. One of the most humbling truths of Scripture is that God sees our hearts and he knows everything about us. That truth, if you don't listen to anything else I, ha I have to say today, if you leave here with that understanding and you take that one truth to heart, it'll change your life. And hopefully for the better. Because you'll know that, you know what? When nobody else sees, God sees. When nobody else knows, God knows. No one else is around, God is. Because in Psalm 139, if you want to read that and look at that with me, the psalmist clearly teaches this truth in such a way that I hope that for some of us, I hope it scares us straight. I hope it scares us straight to our knees, to where we confess our wrongdoing and we turn and we repent from it. And we say, God, forgive me. And stop doing what we're doing that's wrong before God because you think you're getting away with it because no one else has caught you yet. And I think for others, it'll just comfort us in knowing that, you know what? It's a wonderful thing to know that God sees my heart and knows that I am praising and worshiping Him when I can't hit that note to save my life. But it doesn't matter to Him. Oh Lord, You have searched me and You know me. You do know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and you are art intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know all. 
You have enclosed me behind and before, and you have laid upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, for it is too high. I cannot attain it. In Proverbs 5, we read the same thing as, the, as, as we read that for the ways of a man. And this talks about immorality and sexual immorality. also talks about loving our wives. It says, for the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. And he watches all his ways. In Proverbs 15.3, I had a great time just going through Scripture and seeing every reference that you can find that refers to the fact that God knows everything that goes on. The eyes of the Lord are in every place. He's watching the evil and the good. So if you're doing well, praise God, He sees that too. If you're doing wrong, you know what? God forgive me. For he sees that as well. And you say, you know, some of us, we, we get really hung up on things like this. And uh, if you want to go back to Luke 21, and, and we ask the question, you know, how, how can that be? How can God know everything? I mean, think about that. It'd give you a headache, really, if you think about the fact that every, I mean, we're just one small little sampling of the world's population at this moment, given this moment in time. And we've got, you know, six, seven hundred people here, and God says, you know what, I know Every one of your thoughts. How can that be? And, and I mean, and then magnify that, multi- multiply that by the earth's population. And, and I love what, what, what the psalmist writes. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. So if you have any doubts, let me just bring it back to that point. God says so. And I personally believe what he says. And the reason's simple. There are a whole bunch of things in life that I know to be true that are beyond my ability to understand. My little pea brain cannot grasp some of the great truths of life. But it does not preclude the fact that they are truths and facts nonetheless. Our limited understanding of how God can understand how we all think and He knows everything before we even think it. He knows every word we're going to speak before we speak it. It should make us drop on our knees and worship and praise Him because of how awesome He is and not doubt Him. He says, you know what? It's just too wonderful for me to grasp. But I can understand this much about that truth. The Bible clearly teaches it. So therefore it is. And I believe it. And since I believe it, it should change how I live my life. What did Jesus see as he watched how these worshipers made their deposits? Well, we're told initially he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury They were putting in large sums of money if you combine Luke's account and Mark's account. And we shouldn't assume that he disapproved of all the offerings of the rich. Very likely there were some who had very noble motivations. But there were also others, included in this crowd, who liked the attention. And Jesus had already warned of those who like attention in their giving. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4... And he said, you know what, this is how you are to give. You are to give in such a manner, 
you know, where he says, beware of practicing your righteousness before men to be noticed by them. It'd be like as we're walking in the back, we're going to put our offering in the box, but we notice that nobody's there to notice us. So we wait and we wait and we wait until somebody sees us. And then we make sure that as we drop it in, oh, we missed the slot. Oh, we had to pick it up and put it back in. And so everybody knows that, you know, hey, put mine in. Just want to let you know. When therefore you give alms, give, don't sound a trumpet. Hey, everybody, going back to the offering box. As the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be honored by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. That's all you're going to get. Whatever that applause of man is that you're going to get, that's what you're going to get. But when you give, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your alms may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will repay you. What he was warning was that there were those who liked the attention. If you recall in Luke 20, verse 46, that I've already shared... These fellows liked to have people recognize and notice them. And then, by contrast, there was the woman who came and nobody noticed anything she did. Nobody but God. See, sin nature loves to get the attention. Sin nature loves to get the glory. Sin nature loves to get the praise that rightfully belongs to God. And that is so important, I want to repeat that. Our sin nature loves to get the attention and the glory and the recognition that belong to God. And as a result, we've got to be very aware, be aware, be on guard against every form or the strategy of the devil. And one of the strategies is to get us to pat ourselves on the back and not defer and deflect and to give rightfully so the glory and the attention to God. And we all struggle with it, don't we? And we always got to be aware of it, mindful of it, so that we continue to do everything that we can to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, to deflect and defer all attention and the glory to Him. Because it gets really difficult when we get into a position, especially when God has gifted us as, as we have wonderful uh, gifted musicians and, and those who sing to worship. And, and, and you know, and you've got to work hard to develop those gifts that God has given you. You know, I work hard to develop the gift that God has given me. I spend a lot of hours in study and preparing. And, and so there's such a fine line there that we take what God has given us. But if we don't develop and put the energy and the effort into what God has given us, then it'll never be all that it should be for the glory of God. But there's that fine line where it's like, you know, hey, what do you think of me? It doesn't matter. Some, it doesn't, it doesn't. And, and that's what gets so confusing. It does matter. If you don't do a good job, maybe it's because you haven't practiced hard or you haven't studied hard or you haven't put any preparation into it or effort into it or energy into it. You just can't show up and, and mock God that, God, you've given me a gift and that's it. You, you have to do your part. I've got to do my part. And so we recognize that, you know, we're doing our part. God does his part. But at the end of the day, God better be the one who's getting all the glory. He's better be the one that gets the focus and the attention. And, and these folks didn't want to do that. 
And so the question as it comes to giving is this, why do you give? Do you give for the recognition? Do you give to gain some sort of control or to gain power, to to have some type of influence? I wonder what would happen if the great charities of our country these celebrity benefits, etc., these, you know, didn't have published lists of who gave or bronze plaques to, 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 uh, to recognize those who give or pictures of donors holding, you know, three foot long checks, you know, that they have a, you know, there's a photo op that goes with it, you know, and I wonder, you know, how many times professional sports organizations would actually send athletes into a children's hospital to visit if there wasn't a photographer in tow and there wasn't a phone call that was made to a media outlet to cover the event you know because what happens is there are a lot of those guys who do those things that just go on their own and nobody hears anything about it because they they, they're doing it because god has led them to do it and you never see about that read about that or hear about that but oh we feel so good when we see on the newspaper or we see on the news oh so and so this athlete or that athlete or this person or that person went to visit this hospital and the reason we know that they did is because there's a big film crew that there that follows them in or takes pictures and you know and it makes you wonder you know what would happen to all of our charities if human beings didn't get the recognition they were looking for when they gave and i also wonder what would happen to charities if we didn't get the tax benefits that our country gives us makes you wonder doesn't it because sin nature once recognized this huge Passover crowd that was coming in here, you know, made this public display uh, possible by these 13 trumpets. And it created an opportunity for people to kind of, you know, primp and preen and let people know what's going on. And don't forget, now, we're talking about they didn't have checks. You know, they had sacks of money. And could you imagine, you know, these wealthy people that are coming in with these big sacks of money. And so they couldn't even carry them. Sometimes they had their servants carrying their money sacks in. And then they would unload them. Then the next guy comes in. And on and on it went. And Jesus is watching all this. And he sees this and he sees what was going on. You know, and this, this whole display was there. You know, and, and, and what the challenge is for those who are materially blessed in such a culture as ours, the challenge and the deception is this. They thought they were okay because of what they were able to give. They thought they could buy favor with God because they had the financial resources to do that they thought as long as they kept dumping the money in those chests those trumpets that they were okay with god and what jesus was always warning them about is that you are not okay with god because you are giving with the wrong heart motive you are giving to be recognized by people and that's the applause all the applause you're going to get god does not credit that to your account You are not okay with God because it's by grace that we're saved through faith 
and not of ourselves. It is a gift that God offers so that none of us can ever boast. You are not okay because you can write a big check that doesn't make you right with God. It may make you better in your own eyes than other people who don't give as much. It may get you a greater recognition and a bigger plaque or a wing of this building or that building named after you. It may get you recognition here on earth, but as far as your eternal state is concerned, it doesn't help you at all. It doesn't help. You are still dead in your sins. And every opportunity that Jesus had, He warned them to such folks who wrongly believe they can buy God's favor, Jesus is about to teach some timeless truths and to give them a serious wake-up call. And you'll notice what he says, and he saw a certain poor widow putting in two small coins. The word that is used of these two small coins is they basically translate into thin. These two coins were so thin they almost didn't exist. The mathematical calculations of these things are they were worth only one four hundredth of a shekel or about one eighth of a cent. They represented barely nothing. They were like pennies in our culture today that most people, if they saw one on the ground, wouldn't even take time to pick it up. And he, and he was watching. And undoubtedly, when those two coins went into that trumpet it didn't make any sound you couldn't hear it whatsoever there was no noise there was no ding, 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 ding. there was nothing there was nothing and seen in the contrast of what had just taken place here was this one widow who came and she gave what she gave and it unwittingly slammed the righteousness of those other folks Which brings us to the second thing, and that is this. God evaluates differently than we would expect. Notice in verse 3. And he said, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them. In Mark's account, it is in the total sum or collectively, that poor widow, those two thin coins that you could barely see and you certainly didn't hear... She put in more in God's evaluation than all of the treasures that were brought in and dumped in before her combined. You add up everybody's offering that day and you combine them all and Jesus was holding the scale and he said, you know what? Wow, look at all this that was given. And you put those two little coins on here and it went like this. And then it went, how's that? How is that possible? God's math is different than ours. Her two coins were worth more. And you say, Chuck, how is that possible? How can two small coins outweigh all the coins found in 13 trumpets? And he clearly explains it in verse 4. For they all out of their, what? Surplus. Put into the offering, but she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. And God clearly explains what he means. All these folks gave their gifts out of their wealth or out of their surplus, 
but she gave out of her poverty. She gave all that she had to live on. And that's why it went like this. John Calvin writes this. The lesson is useful in two ways. The Lord encourages the poor who appear to lack the means of doing well not to doubt that they testify to their enthusiasm for Him even with a slender contribution. If they consecrate themselves, their offering which appears mean and trivial will be no less precious than if they had offered all the treasures of the world. On the other hand, those who have a richer supply and stand out for their large giving are told that it is not enough if their generosity far exceeds the commoners and the underprivileged, for with God it rates less for a rich man to give a moderate sum from large mass than for a poor man to exhaust himself in paying out something very small. Now let me put it in a language that's easier to understand. If you make $100,000 a year and you give 10%, that's $10,000. If you make $50,000 a year and you give 10%, that's $5,000. If you make $30,000 a year and you give 10%, that's $3,000. One gives 10,000, one gives 5,000, one gives 3,000. And by our math, the human math, we would say the one who gave 10,000 gave the most. And God says, no, that's not my math. Because if the cost of living or the standard of living is 50,000, what I'm talking about is, you know, food, shelter, and clothing, the basic necessities of life. If it is $50,000, then the one who gave 5,000 is giving from what they need to survive. If the one who gave 30,000 gives 3,000, then they give from their poverty as well. The one who gives you know, 10,000 out of 100,000 still has $40,000 surplus to use any way that they feel that they want to use it. And so what God is saying in very simple terms is this. You know what? The more that we have, the more responsible and accountable we are to give to God with an attitude or heart that is right. And what happens in our culture is, is that we need to develop a, a higher standard of giving to God than a higher standing of living for ourselves. And it is so deceptive that many of us are blind to this spiritual truth that Jesus is now laying out before us. You know, why did she do what she did? And the reason was simple. Because she loved God with all her heart, mind, soul, and strength. She loved God with everything she had. Think about it. She could have kept one of them and still gave half. But she said, God, you know what? All that I have is yours. And others don't think it's much, but it's all that I have. And I give it all to you. The little drummer boy. I don't have anything, but I can offer you this song. And I give you what I've got. That's what God is looking for. He's looking for everything from you. He's looking for everything from me. He's not looking for a comfortable percentage and then we can enjoy and do what we do. 
And I want to put all this together and give you some things to chew on, to pray about, and to really focus on as we realize that Jesus' commendation of the widow is also a, common, a condemnation to those who give with wrong motives. And I'm going to challenge you to consider these five observations. Write them down. Put them down in words that, that you understand and in a way that means something to you beyond just sitting here today. But when you move out and you go from here, that we look at it as becoming doers of God's word and not hearers only. The first truth is this. When it comes to giving, the position or posture of our heart makes all the difference before God. The posture of our heart makes all the difference before God. Listen, when you write your tax check, you write your property taxes and you're coming to do whatever now, you know, it's like you write that property tax check, you know, the county recorder's office does not care about your attitude when you write the check. Doesn't care less. When you pay your payables, you pay your utilities and your mortgage payment, your car payments, or whatever else it is, you're paying your Visa or MasterCard, American Express bill, you, you can write that out and then... You, you can have the worst attitude in the world, and they don't care. But when you write out that check to God's work, He cares. He cares. Second Corinthians chapter nine, verses six and seven. Look it up when we've got when you've got some time. But it comes down to this: God loves a cheerful giver, a person who gives with joy. A person who recognizes, you know what, this is a privilege, Lord, to give to you to further your kingdom and for your glory. I want to ask you a question. Do you have joy when you give to the Lord? Or do you wait like a lot of people do? They wait till December and they go, oh, you know, I've got to figure out where we're at this year, figure out what, what we gave, what we not, need to make up when I need to make up, you know, because it's like, you know what? The Bible says honor the Lord from the first of all your fruit. He doesn't say wait till the end of the year and then do an accounting of where you're at, what you got left, what you need for what you want, and then say, okay, God, I'll throw you a bone. You know, when we have that kind of attitude, we're missing the whole point. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 says, you know, if I give all my, that I possess to the poor and surrender my body even to the flames, but I don't have love, I gain nothing. If I don't have the right attitude and the right heart before God, it profits me nothing. Without love, it's just a waste of time. God loves a cheerful giver. God checks our motivations. This truth is either a terror or a comfort, which way does it strike you? Number two, giving that pleases God is giving that costs us something. And what I mean by that is that giving that is not sacrificial giving is not giving at all. It is out of our surplus. It is out of our abundance. There's, there's no sacrifice that's being made. You know, the church, when you read 2 Corinthians, read chapters 8 and read chapters 9. But when the church in Macedonia, uh, the church at Corinth was taking up a collection for the saints in Macedonia, it says that they gave out of their poverty. That church was so poor, it had no money of its own, but it still took up a collection for people they, that they thought needed it more than them. And that's a wonderful place to be in life, where people look at us and say, you know what? With all that you have going on in your life, I'm amazed that you have time for me. 
I got an email from a guy who was going through some serious personal issues. And God really put him on my heart, and we developed a relationship. And I, so I emailed him, and I just told him you know, what I thought of him and what I thought God was doing. And, and he wrote me back, and he said, you know what? I can't believe that what, what you're going through, you have time to even think about me. But that is God's grace and love being demonstrated through you. And we have always got to be that way. That we are no, never so self-centered or, or self-invested that we forget what's happening in the lives of people around us. We need to give sacrificially. And you know what that means? It means this. When was the last time that you gave to the Lord's work, and whatever that is in whatever manner that is, and, and the way you did it was this. We saved money to go on vacation. We're not going on vacation. We're taking that money and we're going to give it to this work of the Lord's. We saved money. We've been saving money to buy this. And you know what? But we want to do that with it. I did a vow renewal for a couple last week. They had 250 people or so that they invited to it. And it ended up costing them a ton of money. And the guy was joking. But I said, man, that's a new truck. But the reason that they did it was it was a great excuse or a platform to invite all their unbelieving friends and family and co-workers to come and then pick up the tab for their dinner in order, in exchange, for them to hear clearly the gospel. You know, and I, and I did that commercial for them. You know, I was like, you know, you know $70 per head, you know, the, the, this rental, that rental, the other rental, one person coming to faith, priceless. And he, went, and he just looked at me and went, thanks. Thanks. You know, but, but it was true. You know, they did something that they said, this is more important for you people than it is that we can use the money that we save to do something for us. When was the last time that you took something that you wanted so badly, something you wanted to do for yourself, and you had the money to do it and said, I'm not going to do it. I've chosen now to give it to the Lord's work. You, if you've done it, you understand the text. You, if you've never done it, are trying to figure out a way out of what I just said. <laughs> You're looking for a loophole. But that's the way it is. Oh, and by the way, parents, may I suggest something to you? Parents, if you want to teach your children to give to the Lord's work, don't give them the money to give to the offering. Make them earn it. And then when you give it to them, then it becomes theirs, and now they need to make a choice as to what they'll do with it. To hand somebody money to hand and put in the offering box, you know what? There's no understanding of what it means to give sacrificially because they wouldn't have had it to begin with if you didn't give it to them for the purpose of putting in the offering. So they just realize that only I got to touch it, and so I can drop it over here. Now, if I would have earned it myself, and then you were teaching by example and by truth and by ta- you know, words, you know, what it means to give sacrificially, then they've got to make the same decision that you've got to make, and that is, okay, God, what are you going to get from me? Tough. It's tough stuff. And here's the point. If you and I, as God's people, are living at the same material standard as our unbelieving neighbors co-workers and relatives and friends who make a similar amount of money, there is something wrong with our walk with the Lord. Why? 
because unbelievers live to please themselves and believers on paper, the book, says we're supposed to live to please God. And if we can keep up with those who are making the same amount of money with us from the material consumptive standpoint, then you know what? We are not giving sacrificially because we're not feeling the hurt of giving to God and we're also not getting the blessing of being able to say, I don't need to keep up with my neighbor because I got more important priorities in life. And that's how we fall into deceptiveness. Because you know what? When you have more, you know, you get to a point where you have more and more disposable income, it's easier and easier to buy more things for yourself and still justify that, you know what, you're still giving a big chunk over here because you look at a percentage as a percentage. But God doesn't look at that. That's not his math. He sees the heart and he sees whether we give sacrificially. Time to move on. Getting a little uncomfortable. Number three, God can do great things with tiny offerings. And the reason's simple, because God's not limited. God owns it all. God's got all the power, all the glory, all the dominion forever His. Amen. And He can take nothing and make it into something. And if you don't believe me, look at the universe. Look around. He took nothing and made it into something. God created Bera out of nothing. He made everything that we see. God took dust, made us, breathed in life. Where did he get the dust? He had made it up. <laughs> How did he make it up? Don't know. He just did. That's what the word says. I believe it. That's good enough for me. See, he can take nothing and make it into something great. And you know what? He took this woman's two thin little coins, and he has turned it into billions over the course of his church by the preaching of his word and the moving of his spirit. And God's spirit moved in the hearts of people who had been previously very self-centered and selfish and were moved by the spirit of God and the word of God. And they said, you know what? We need to start giving to the Lord's work. And it was from her example what God has turned out today. And you know what's awesome about it? Number four is that we all have to give an account. We're all going to have to give an account. At the judgment seat of Christ, he will square all of his accounts. And the wonderful thing about that is this. Think about this. This widow, because the judgment seat of Christ does not occur until a future date, this widow, in the presence of God today, does not even understand or know what you and I know from this text, how great her reward will be. But when she appears before the Bema seat of Jesus Christ, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and she is judged for how she lived in this life, not for her sin because she trusted in the Savior, but she'll be judged for how she lived, the Bible says that she will be rewarded according to her heart and what she did. You and I got a glimpse of what she has in store for her and she may not even know yet. How awesome is that? What awaits you on that judgment day? And if you knew you only had two months to live, you'd start using it for the kingdom of God like you've never used in your life. And you know why? Because you know that five, six, seven warehouses full of stuff 
will not do you a thing when you have to give an account for how you used it for God's sake. Money didn't mean anything. All that it means is it talks about where you're at spiritually. And if you're investing in the kingdom of God because you realize that, you know what, that's the only reason God gives it for us in this temporary thing that we call life. And that's why Jesus said, store up all your treasures in heaven where rust won't destroy, thieves can't break in, moths won't destroy. You know what? Store it all up in heaven. Because there are wait for you one day at that judgment seat. There awaits for you a reward based on what you did with what God gave you now. My attitude is this. We need to be using it for the kingdom of God and in a balanced way according to Scripture. We need to leave some for our family, our children, and our children's children, but only if they understand the biblical truth of using the resources to expand God's kingdom. We are never to leave it behind so that it becomes a stumbling block in someone's walk with the Lord. Better that they live in poverty and walk with the Lord than have all the riches of this world and their hearts grow cold towards God. And so we need to balance all of these things. And fifthly and lastly, God is equal opportunity. And I'll close with that thought. And that means simply this. It doesn't matter whether you have this much that this world has to offer, or it doesn't mean whether you have this little that the world has to offer. Every one of us are to give to God from the generosity and the gratefulness of our hearts. Doesn't matter whether you're a pastor doesn't matter whether you're an elder, doesn't matter whether you're a lay person, doesn't matter whether you're a worship leader, doesn't matter if you're serving the church in any other way, it doesn't matter because God expects you to give from your resources as well as your talents and your gifts. There is no one who is exempt from tithing. There is no one who is exempt from giving materially. There is no one who can skirt the issue and say, but I'm doing these things. I hear people all the time talk about, well, but I I volunteer my time. It doesn't matter because until you can start giving from your finances, your finances still have a grip on your hearts. Put it all together. In closing, I'll make this as simple as possible. God does not want our money. You say, Chuck, you just spent, how long did you spend telling us God wants our money? If that's what you heard, then I'm sorry that you heard that. God doesn't want our money. He wants us. And yet you cannot give of yourself apart from money. Money talks. It tells where our hearts are. What does our giving tell God about us? Jesus sits across from the offering box Every week of every church. And he watches not only what is given. But he watches how it is given. He hears the arguments in homes. Between husbands and wives. Who argue about how much to give. Those children in the home hear parents argue about whether they should tithe or not on the gross or on the net or on this amount or that amount. They hear all of these things. How much more so does God? Can you imagine that? God hears us fighting over how much to give Him, and yet we do anyway. What does He see in our church? What does he see in our life? 
according to the Associated Press, October 1994. Harvard University Law School announced it had just received the largest cash gift ever given to a law school, $13 million. The donors were Gustav and Rita Hauser. What was it that inspired such generosity, romance, and gratitude? Back in 1955, Gustav and Rita met at law school. The day after final exams, they got married. They went on to become highly successful in business. Hauser is a chairman and CEO of Hauser Communications, formerly head of the Warner Brothers Cable Unit, (coughs) was one of the pioneers of cable television and a developer of the Nickelodeon channel. Gustav Hauser never practiced law, like so many people with degrees. (coughs) It seems his deep gratitude toward Harvard was because of its role as matchmaker, said Hauser at a ceremony announcing the donation. The school had a unique role in bringing my wife and I together. Now I want you to stop and think about something. When we are given much and are mature enough to be grateful, we naturally want to give much. God gave His only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's no wonder then that we should find great joy in giving back to God our time, our energy, our abilities, and money. Because we owe God Everything. Don't hold back. God didn't. And I'm glad he didn't. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for these four most powerful verses. Thank you for the example of this widow. Who because of her right heart gave an offering that has spoken throughout church history and will continue to speak throughout eternity because your word is everlasting. God, I pray for all of us that we would become more generous towards you, that we will not be possessed by our possessions, but out of an attitude of gratitude because of what you have done for us, that we would give to your kingdom, to your purposes, and ultimately all for your glory. God, I thank you for this church and those who have demonstrated their faithfulness and generosity from the very beginning until now. God, I pray that each of us will become more generous, not for the purposes of building any earthly kingdom, but so that we can use it for your strategic purpose of reaching this world with the word of God, the very gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May you expand your kingdom through our efforts, and we will praise you through all of eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.